This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, verses 1 to 21. It's found on page 404 in the Bibles there in your rows if you'd like to follow along. And also print it in your bulletins. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 21. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled and fasting in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessings and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers." And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments, and you make known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. 
The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water from, for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Oh, good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here, and man, what a prayer uh, Ryan just read to us. And really, we only got the first half of it there, uh, just for time's sake. Uh, we just read the first half, but I'm really going to be referring to the whole of Nehemiah chapter 9. So you may want a Bible open uh, on your laps this morning and your rows there if you're using uh, those. It starts on page 404, but just a little context here. Uh, we have been studying the book of Nehemiah here on Sunday mornings at New City, and this story takes place around 445 B.C. Jerusalem had been destroyed 140 years earlier. A lot of its citizens had been carted off into exile by the Babylonians. Nehemiah himself grew up in exile, the child of exiles, but he then in our story leads a group back to Jerusalem uh, specifically to rebuild and to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And so chapters 1 to 7 of this story deal with this rebuilding. Nehemiah's decision to go back to Jerusalem, his convincing of the king to let him go, to the organization and the deployment of the rebuilding efforts, and his handling of all kinds of opposition and danger. And he does it, right? The walls are rebuilt. Mission accomplished. And you'd expect then the last few chapters here just to be a, a grand celebration of this amazing feat. And there is some of that, particularly at the beginning of chapter 8, and Brian talked about that last week. But right after this big party, right after this big uh, victory triumph celebration, two other things happen that are, I, I think, a bit more unusual, let's say. In chapter 8, they read God's Word together. They celebrate then, almost immediately afterwards, they celebrate the Feast of Booths, which is also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the Feast of Booths is, it is a festival, it is a time of joy, but with a kind of weird visual aid cooked into it. Everybody during this time moves out of their houses and into tents for a week. And the idea behind that being to celebrate the goodness of God to the people years before when they were in their wilderness wanderings, when they were living in tents as they were on their way to the promised land. But I just want you for a second to imagine that you're an onlooker to this, right? You're somebody from outside of Israel and you're watching this thinking, right, you guys just rebuilt your city only to now go out and live in tents. I mean, isn't that actually the point of building a city so they don't have to sleep outside anymore? But again, right, the idea is a reminder of how God brought them to Jerusalem in the first place. But it also serves as a reminder that as good as it was to rebuild Jerusalem, as good as it is to have city walls for protection, our ultimate hope is in no human city. Our citizenship ultimately is in the kingdom of God. As Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 puts it, for here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Even with a rebuilt Jerusalem, even with rebuilt walls, we're still pilgrims on the way heading to the real promised land, the kingdom of God. And so in chapter 8, 
We've rebuilt the walls, yay! But here's this elaborate drama reminding us that even that great triumph isn't our ultimate hope. Unusual way to celebrate. And then you get to chapter 9, and the strangeness amplifies further. It's all sackcloth and ashes and prayers of repentance. I mean, the complete lack of triumphalism here is completely amazing. They're not patting themselves on the back at all, are they? Instead, they've looked into the mirror of God's word, they've seen their sin, and they begin to repent. They repent of their sins, and they repent of the sins of those who have gone before them. Now, as you read this, you might be thinking, is this really what Israel would want the world to see in them? I mean, we've read earlier in the book of Nehemiah, uh, now, you know, this is starting to get the attention of the nations around, the Gentile nations. They've heard about this rebuilding effort. They're watching, they're visiting, uh, they're uh, taking a look at what's happening in Israel. Is this what Israel should be showing the world? I mean, wouldn't it be better to make a show of power and might, bravado and swagger and hashtag winning (laughs) rather than confessing weakness and sin, begging God for mercy and grace, all in a posture of humility? Is this really what Israel would want to show the world? Is this what the church should be showing to the world? My contention this morning is that Nehemiah helps us understand what our posture should be before the Lord, but also our posture toward the world around us. You see, the people of God are meant to be a people who are always repenting. The people of God are meant to be a people who repent, who are cultivating lives of repentance, lives of repentance focused on God, honest about self, and hopeful about salvation. And this is actually a wonderful thing for the world to see because you know what that does? That decenters us and it makes God the hero of the story, which of course he is. So let's take a look at it this morning. First, a life of repentance that is focused on God. Now, it's been argued that we are in our culture today more in touch with our anger than perhaps at any other time in our history. And maybe social media has something to do with that, I'm not sure, but and, and look, I'm, I'm sure there's good parts to this, right? There is a righteous anger that moves to action. We talked about that just a few weeks ago. There's also a danger to anger, is there not? Danger in what it can do to your soul as it eats away at you. A danger in what it can do to others as you lash out or shut down. Danger in what it can do to a group as we galvanize factions and treat each other like enemies rather than brothers and sisters. We're more in touch with our anger these days, but what about our sadness? What about our grieving? What about our mourning? And that's what we see happening here at the start of chapter 9. This is a people in mourning. Verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Fasting, sackcloth, dirt, and ashes, these are signs of grieving. But what is it that they're sad about? Verse 3, and they stood up in their place 
and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now that's a pretty intense worship service, right? Quarter of the day in Bible reading, quarter of the day in confession. So I don't want to hear any complaints about sermon length, all right? Not after reading this. But what are they grieving? What are they mourning? They're mourning their sin. They read the scriptures and since then, how deeply they have fallen short of the life that God has called them to. And they begin to confess their sins and the sins of those who had gone before them, realizing how sin had deadened them to the work of God in the world. And so they weep. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. And that's what's happening here. But notice that's not all that they do. This is not a mourning or grieving that leads to despair because it's not characterized mainly with a focus on self. Rather, their focus is on God. Look at verse 5. Then the Levites, and I'm not going to repeat all those names there that Ryan said earlier. The Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This morning, this repentance is not an exercise in navel-gazing. They encounter God's holiness as they read His Word, and that naturally leads to a confession of sin. But they're not mainly looking at themselves. They're primarily caught up in a vision of God. And the Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, gives us all this advice. He says, for every look at yourself... Take 10 looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And that's just what they do here in verses 6 to 15. They begin to recount the deeds of God. They start with the work of God in creation, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You've made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And then it's on to the work of God in redemption. You chose Abram, verse 7, later called Abraham, and you brought him up out of the land of the Chaldeans. Verse 8, you made a covenant with him and kept your promise, O God. Then it's on to the deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Verse 9, 10, 11, and 12, you saw our affliction. You performed signs and wonders. You led us by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. And then you gave us the law. Mount Sinai, verse 13 and 14, the commands that you give us are good and right and true and a mercy to us. And you provided for us, verse 15, give us everything that we needed in the desert. And what I want you to see here is that God is the subject of every sentence. God is the subject of every sentence. The focus, in other words, is on God And what God has done, confession and repentance come when we see our lives in contrast to God's goodness and grace, but we're not primarily looking at ourselves. We're mainly focused and fixed on God. Let me read to you the longer context of that quote from Robert Murray McShane, again, Scottish minister. He wrote this, he said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. 
Live much in the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Mourning sin is important. Blessed are those who mourn. But the Apostle Paul says there is a worldly grief that leads to death and despair. But there's also a godly grief that produces repentance. You see, the worldly grief that leads to despair mainly has us in view. How we've done, how we've failed, how unlikely it is that we're ever going to get it together. But a godly grief looks to God, looks to Jesus, rests in his grace, looks to his forgiveness, lives in his smiles, basks in his beams, reposes in his almighty arms of love. And then, then we can truly repent. Because we're not destroyed in shame and guilt. Our sin is great, but God's grace is greater still. And so a question to ask yourself this week, maybe talk about it over lunch if you want, but is my spiritual formation focused mainly on myself? That is, how am I doing? How am I performing? Or is my spiritual formation absolutely caught up in learning about, looking at, and pondering God and his works. In fact, here's an exercise for you to do this week. Take a portion of scripture and just get a pen, get a journal, and begin to list out the things that God has done. Ponder his works, to use the words of the Psalms. Some suggestions of things that you might take a look at might be Psalm 78 or Psalm 105, Psalm 106, Nehemiah chapter 9. These are all places that you could go. But just read a portion of Scripture, list out the things that God has done. But then secondly, and don't don't stop at that point, begin to think of your own life. And then list out 20 things that God has done for you. Fix your eyes on God's faithfulness, God's goodness, a life of repentance is focused on God. But secondly, a life of repentance is honest about self. Notice in verse 2, it says, they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now, do note this. They are confessing their own sins, but also the sins of those who went before them. And this is a really difficult concept for most Americans. How can I confess the sins of other people, other people from the past? I'm not connected to them. I didn't do those things. You know, we live in perhaps the most individualistic society ever in the history of the world. And uh, you have to understand, though, that most of the world, even today, doesn't, isn't as individualistic as our society is, and certainly in history, in the ancient world, They didn't view the world that way. And when you read the Bible, if you're reading it closely, you'll see that the teaching of the Bible is that we are much more closely connected to each other than we typically realize. There is, in other words, a moral context to society and family and nation and church, and we inherit much of that. It's passed down to us. We live and move in it which is one of the reasons why it's often difficult to point to or see. It's all around us, this moral context. And so our connections then, they matter. If we're going to claim the victories of the past, of the church or of our country or of our tribe, then we also have to own the sins and the wrongs. There's some debate about the propriety of confessing the sins of racial or ethnic or national connections. 
and I don't have time to get into all that here, but I will say this, you know, for Christians, there should be absolutely no debate about confessing the sins of the church in the past. Because if we believe what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, if we believe this, then we are deeply connected to everyone who professes Christ. We're deeply connected to everyone who exists within the covenant community. And if we believe what the ancient creeds say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. You know, the communion of saints includes those from other places and tribes and tongues, but also people from other times. And so the corporate confession of sin, like what we see here in Nehemiah, is a recognition of our connectedness to those who've gone before us, both the good and the the bad. It's also a recognition that sin tends to flow downhill. That is, we tend to repeat the sins of our forebears. Look at verse 28. This is talking about the cycle of behavior, uh, especially prevalent in the book of Judges, but really flowing down through all of the life of Israel. Verse 28 says, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them into the hands of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercy. So the cycle is, right, they would forget God. God would give them over to their enemies. They would cry out for mercy. God would rescue them. They would give him praise. And then the cycle would begin to repeat again. They'd forget God and do evil and so on. This confession of sin that Nehemiah is calling for here is a desire to break the cycle, to not commit the same sins of the past. And you know, the Bible is refreshingly honest about the failures and the sins of God's people. No cover-ups, no sweeping under the rug. You can't read the Bible without seeing how uh, much the Bible is willing to air the dirty laundry of all of its leaders and all of its people. And the church is called to this same kind of transparency whether we're talking about sins of racial injustice or sexual abuse or the failure of leaders or greed or whatever it may be, God's people are to be transparent, to confess. Starting in verse 16, the text goes on, this prayer goes on, putting side by side the sins and the failings of the people on one side and the great love and faithfulness of God on the other. Verse 33 sums this up. Yet you have been righteous, God, in all that has come upon us. Listen to this. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. You see the contrast? God's tenacious loyalty with their own persistent evil. Again, let's just ask what we asked earlier. Is this a good look? For the people of God to be so open about their sins and their failings. Isn't this the opposite of gaslighting, right? This is, this is documenting, meticulously documenting sin for all to see. I imagine this is not what a PR firm would recommend. Is this a good witness? 
to those who are around us? Isn't a holy mask more preferable? Smooth out the rough edges. You know, when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul models for us a kind of radical honesty about sin. D.G. Barnhouse um, was the uh, longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Center City, Philadelphia. And uh, he points out, in his study of the Apostle Paul, he points out that as Paul grew in his spiritual maturity, the more he became spiritually mature, the more he confessed his sin, the more comfortable he came, uh, became talking about himself as a sinner. Barnhouse called this Paul's strange advancing knowledge of sin. And he put it this way, he said, consider, in one of Paul's earliest letters, 1 Corinthians, he calls himself one of the least of the apostles, right? Yeah, that's pretty humble, one of the least of the apostles. Still an apostle, that's pretty good. But later in his career, he writes to the Ephesians and he refers to himself as the very least of all the saints. Now he's the least in the, amongst the, the church. And in one of his very last epistles to Timothy, he calls himself the sinners. He is the foremost, the chief of sinners. Paul's strange advancing knowledge of sin. As he grows in his spiritual maturity, he's more honest, more forthcoming, more transparent about his sins and his failings. And that's how we should be. We should not hide away under the pretense of perfection. For one thing, it's just not true. But secondly, we have to remind ourselves, what are we witnessing to around the world? What do we want the world to see? The good news, the gospel, is not our moral perfection. The good news is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And friends, this may be one of the real tests of our understanding of the gospel. When was the last time you shared your weakness, you shared your sin with people in your community group, your roommate, your spouse, your children? James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We should be quick to confess our sins. Verse Thessalonians 5, 14 says, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. In a community of sinners, we need to help each other. We also need to be patient with each other. The people of repentance are focused on God. They're honest about self. And finally, they're hopeful about salvation. One of the most stirring images in all of the Bible is the image of a man running. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15 about a son who just cannot wait to get away from his dad, cannot wait to get out of his home. He gets his share of the family wealth. He tells his father, I want your money, but I don't want you. And he takes off, he leaves. He's gone for some time. Eventually things go poorly. He squanders the money. He comes back home fully expecting to need to grovel. Maybe, just maybe he can become an employee somewhere on his father's estate. Instead, as Jesus tells the story, the father, when he sees the son, this rebellious son, this wayward son, when he sees the son from a long way off, he runs to him. He runs to him and he throws his arms around him. 
And the good news of the gospel is that you can repent and you can go home, not because you're good, but because you're wanted. Like the father with his wayward son. That's what verse 32 is getting at. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. When they pray and when they ask for God's help, what are they appealing to? How well they've done their good intentions for the future? No. They're appealing to God's steadfast love. And the Hebrew word for that, steadfast love, is the word hesed. Sally Lloyd-Jones translates it in the Jesus Storybook Bible, about as good of a translation as I could imagine. She calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. This is the love that welcomes sinners home. This is the love that runs to meet the repentant wayward son. This is the love that kills the fatted calf and throws a party to celebrate the homecoming. This is the love that makes it safe to repent. Paul called it God's kindness, which leads us to repentance. There's a paragraph starting there in verse 26. I wonder if you notice this. Uh, Nehemiah 9, paragraph starts in verse 26. It ends in verse 31, and it's bookended with that word nevertheless. Starts in verse 26 with the people's sin, right? God had been gracious, but then it says, nevertheless, they were disobedient, and they rebelled against you. But the paragraph ends, verse 31, nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Eugene Peterson once praised uh, the Russian novelist Dostoevsky for writing novels that consistently invoke the reversal of human assessments. He said, all of Dostoevsky's novels like this, it reverses what you'd expect to happen. X happens, right, and conventional wisdom says Y should be the result. But then grace breaks in, and it turns this cause and effect on its ear. And Peterson said Dostoevsky's characters were shaped under the rubric of the divine nevertheless. Yes, the character has this weakness and this should happen to him and it's what his sin deserves, but nevertheless. That's what the people of Nehemiah are counting on. The divine nevertheless. Our sin is great. Nevertheless, his grace is greater still. We are unfaithful. Nevertheless, he is utterly and completely faithful to his promises. And this makes us hopeful for salvation. This makes us able to relax into his love. Let's pray. And we're going to sing and come to the Lord's Supper together this morning. Lord, you are great, mighty, and awesome. A God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And Lord, we know that our sin is great. Nevertheless, your grace is greater still. And we ask that this truth would enable us to cast off any false pretenses we may have. Help us to be honest with ourselves and to be honest with you. Help us to do what Robert Murray McShane says, to live much in the smiles of God. 
Holy Spirit, would you move in us in such a way that we don't just know that you care for us, but that we would experience it even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.